Acts chapter number 1, we began the book of Acts last Sunday night. Uh, what an enjoyable time that was. We looked at the first 11 verses, and we're going to look from verse 12 down through the end of the book. Now, uh, on Wednesday nights, we went through Hebrews. It took us two years to get through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And to be honest, we could probably take two to three years to get through the book of Acts if we wanted to move at that pace. My goal is to try to get through as much of the book this uh, calendar year as possible. And so we won't get bogged down um, into certain passages like we could. Uh, the goal will be to spend no more than two weeks in any one chapter. There will be some exceptions to that along the way. Uh, but uh, to try to get through as much of the chapter as we can this year. We'll, uh, we'll be in, or rather, as much of the book as we can this year. We'll be looking at the second half of chapter 1 and be getting all the way through that uh, tonight. Once you've found Acts chapter 1, verse 12, if you're able to, if you'd stand as we read God's Word here, Acts chapter 1, and for uh, the sake of our Scripture reading, we'll be reading from verse 12 down through verse number 15. The Bible says, Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotus and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, The number of names together were about 120. We'll look at what Peter said here in just a few minutes. But 120 of these people gathered together in an upper room and they had what appears to be the very, very first church service. So that brings us to this title, What Happened in the First Church Service? What happened in that very first church service? Here we are, all these years later, gathered together having church. Well, they had the first one. Well, what did they do in that service? And that's what Acts 1 lays out for us. And let's pray and we'll jump into that tonight. Lord, help us as we seek to understand the passage. Uh, Lord, uh, there's parts of this passage that are left open to broad interpretation and, Lord, many opinions. And, Lord, help me not to get bogged down in giving any opinions, but, Lord, help us just to take what's there and do our best to digest and understand it. Lord, we know your word will not return void. And so, Holy Spirit of God, we ask that you make the applications into hearts and lives as is needed. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, much of what we do here at our church is tradition that has been passed down over many, many generations. Have you ever wondered what it must have been like to gather for church for the very, very first time? You know, they were flying solo here. They had, they had Jesus to instruct them for three and a half years. He ascends to heaven, sends them into Jerusalem, and now they're having their very first church service without Jesus present. What did they do? I wonder, was there an order of service? Um, did they have a pianist? Probably not. Were there ushers? Was someone working the sound booth? Did they have greeters at the door? How about a coffee station? You can't have church that. No, you can't have church without a coffee station. 
Was there a Sunday school program or a nursery? Did someone conduct a junior church? What do you think, Brother Andres? you think they had a junior church? How about a teen program? Um, these followers... Uh, well, let me back up. No, none of these things would have been present that first church service. The first church service was quite different than anything we have today. It was devoid of bulletins and and programs. Um, I doubt Peter stood up and preached an alliterated outline, if, if any outline at all. Um, there were no PowerPoint presentations. No screens, no hymnals, no pews. None of that was present. These followers of Jesus left the Mount of Olives and traveled what Luke describes as a Sabbath day journey. This, this points out, uh, rather this points to the strong Judaism that still loomed over this newly formed church. Soon, very soon, these 120 folks would break free from formalism and even one day, move their, uh, their, their day of gathering and worship to the first day of the week in honor of the resurrection of the Christ. Now, let me just take a moment here and say that many people that go to church major on minors. They major on minors. You know, there's the independent Baptist way of doing church. You travel around America and you go to church and you know what? For the most part, we all sing the same hymns. There's a few that are sung in regions of the country that aren't sang in others, but they all sound pretty similar. Independent Baptist churches are mixing in some of the more newer choruses like we have done here. Um, screens have become a thing of late and nurseries and church programs and bulletins and the style of preaching varies a little bit, but... All in all, you're going to get a good Bible message in most independent Baptist churches. But can I tell you that there's nothing wrong with having the preaching first and the singing last? Nothing wrong with that? Do you know there's nothing wrong with taking 25 minutes on a Sunday morning and having a prayer service before you have a sermon? There's a lot of different ways that you can do this. Um, there are churches whose worship style is far more bombastic and exciting than ours. I was watching a, a video clip of a friend of mine who pastors a church in Mississippi. And, I mean, there was hooting and hollering and shouting and they're waving Bibles in the air. And, man, one guy took off his suit jacket and started running up and down the aisle, waving it over his head. But you know what? It was sincere. It wasn't hokey. It was sincere. It was how they do it down there. Now, uh, in New England, if somebody does that, you say... Watching, they're about to go get a snake, you know? They're going to bring a snake out next. Um, but let's not throw stones at churches that do a little bit different than us. And you may not be totally comfortable with everything we do here. Let's not throw stones at the way it's done here. Uh, 2,000 years later, we've gotten a little more organized and structured, and we've added some things. But at the end of the day, is Christ high and lifted up? Is the gospel preached? Are people being saved? Is the Great Commission being executed? That's, that's, the, that's the goal of the church. 120 people gathered into an upper room and held what appears to be the very first gathering post-Christ's ascension. What happened in that first church service? I propose that God sent His Holy Spirit's power 
down upon them because they were where they were supposed to be doing what they were supposed to be doing when they were supposed to be doing it. You know what I gather from that? God blesses obedience. God blesses obedience. Many Christians wonder why life doesn't go their way or why God is not blessing them more. The truth is, if the disciples had not gathered in Jerusalem and been in church, they would have missed out on what God had in store. And so I want to ask you this question by way of introduction this evening. Christian, are you obedient to God in the what's, the when's, and the where's? God blesses obedience. Let's jump in and look at Acts 1, uh, 12 down at the end of the chapter, and we're going to pull out three observations about this first church service. And we're going to seek to answer the question, what happened in the first church service? All right, point number one, let's jump in tonight. Notice the church's assembly. The church's assembly. Look at verse number 12. The Bible says, Then they re- then returned they into Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotus and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord and in prayer with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brother. Now we'll look at verses uh, thir- verse 13 and then verse 15 here in just a moment. But let's focus in on verse number 14. And let's talk about the church's assembly. Notice letter A. It was a persevering assembly. A persevering assembly. Look at verse number 14 with me again. Acts chapter 1 and look at verse number 14. Notice those first three words. Can we read those first three words together? Ready? Here we go. These all continued. Notice that word continued. Another way to say that is these all waited. These all waited. And wait they did. They were told by Jesus to go into Jerusalem and wait. Wait for what? Wait for the Holy Ghost, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Wait for the Comforter to come down and possess them. Now, I'm curious if they had read the prophecies and if they knew uh, or did they know um, uh, that this would take place on the day of Pentecost. Uh, it was all there. It was all in the uh, Old Testament prophets. And had they studied that out, they would have known that the Spirit of God would fall on them on that day of Pentecost. Maybe they knew. Maybe they didn't. But all the same, there they were in that upper room and they waited it out. You know, many Christians would do good to learn how to handle that one answer to prayer that we probably hate the least. What's that word? Wait. Wait. Sometimes God says yes. Sometimes he says no. I would rather a yes or no answer in prayer. I don't necessarily enjoy it when God says wait. Wait. Lord, can I have wait? Lord, can you bless such and such with 
Wait. Lord, will you reveal your will to me in this area? Wait. What did God tell the Israelites by the Red Sea? He said, wait. What did God uh, uh, tell uh, Esther uh, as she wanted to go in and see the king for a short time? He said, wait. What does God tell me and you at times in our Christian life when we pray and we want something? He says, wait, wait, wait. The Bible says in verse 14, these all continued. They weren't going anywhere. They were 120 gathered together, and they continued. They continued. You know, uh, 12 months from now, there's a good chance that someone sitting in this room here tonight will not be in church anymore. They will have dropped out. Boy, those of you that have been in White Oak Baptist Church for 10, 15, 20 30 years. You've seen people come and go. Sometimes people stick around for 30 days. Other times people stick around for 30 months. But people come and people go. They're here and then they're not. And it isn't that they switch churches. It's that they're not in church altogether. Trust me, Satan is trying to take you out and he's trying to get you to be a casualty of the faith. He wants you on the sideline. The question is, will you persevere? Will you persevere through the thick and thin? Will you continue the way these disciples Continue. Letter A, we see a persevering assembly. Letter B, notice a purposeful assembly. A purposeful assembly. Look down at verse number 14 with me again. The Bible says, these all continued. Let's read those next three words together. Ready? With one accord. Now we'll see this, this phrase come back up in chapter 2. And no doubt in chapter 2 we'll spend a little bit more time on it. But you know what this means? This just means that they made things right one with another. Do you know the fastest way to find out just how sinful and unsanctified you truly are? Two words. Get married. Get married. You want to find out how unsanctified you are? Get married. How many married people understand what I'm saying this evening? You know that, hey, you're going to find out just how much of a sinner you are. I have my wife to point out all of my... No, I'm just teasing she doesn't do that. But just the nature of living in a marriage, you realize how quickly, just how broken you are. By the way, uh, you don't just have to be married. Spend time around any other person at great length. And the holes in your game and the holes in their game will become revealed in time. Happens every time. Happens every time. Now, when you put two people into close proximity for a long period of time, you are going to come up with reasons to be offended. I don't care which two people they are. Peter and Paul got into a fight. These are two good men. These are two great men. And Paul says in Galatians, I withstood him to the face. You know what that means? That means Paul got in Peter's face and he said, Hey, bro, you're wrong. Way you're behaving in right. You think Peter took well to that? I bet Peter didn't take real well to that at first. And if Paul and Peter can get into it, don't you think that any two people in this room that spend enough time together eventually uh, can have a reason to have an offense between them? Here you have 120 people who had one person in common, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the brothers of Jesus had 30 years or so to rub each other the wrong way. There were other sets of siblings there in the room uh, who could have had offenses to confess and forgive. The disciples themselves bickered and argued and and fought with each other regularly throughout the gospel accounts, what did they do in the first church service? They got things right with each other. 
They cleared the air. They, they forgave and they confessed. They did their part to be in one accord. What did, they, what did they learn, or rather, where did they learn the importance of doing this? Take your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 23. Where did they learn the importance of doing this? They learned it from Jesus himself. You see, Jesus, very, very early on in his ministry with the disciples, uh, gives us the Sermon on the Mount. And we know many things from the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men, and seek ye first the kingdom of God, and ask, seek, knock. Uh, all those are passages from the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, right? Uh, uh, blessed are the uh, merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst. All that's at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. And boy, Matthew, uh, some have said that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. That's very likely the case. Uh, it's definitely one of the most dense sermons that's ever been preached, dense with truth, uh, found there in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 23, Jesus talks about how to handle offenses with a brother or sister in Christ. Look there. It says, therefore, verse 23, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversaries quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Uh, and so here you have uh, Jesus telling us that if you have a problem with a brother or sister in the Lord, to go leave your gift... Uh, and go get that thing fixed. Be in one accord with one another. Uh, listen, don't become passive-aggressive with people. Don't become nasty with people. Don't write people off. Don't grow cold-hearted toward a brother or sister in the Lord. You say, well, Pastor, I've done everything I can to clear the air with brother or sister such and such, and they just won't have it. If they won't have it, you've done all you can. You've made that effort. You've extended that olive branch, and you just pray that God will give them the heart, and in time, they'll come around to the idea of reconciling. But you make sure you maintain a heart of humility. Um, look, uh, James chapter 5, verse 16, we're told this, Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. When these followers of Jesus gather together for the very, very first time, they met with purpose. The purpose of clearing the air. Listen here. The purpose of having enough humility to confess their wrongdoings and the, per enough, uh, and the purpose of showing grace to forgive those who needed forgiving. How many of you here, well, I won't ask the question because the answer is everyone, but all of us here at some point or another, if you've lived long enough, have been offended while at church. Somebody's hurt your feelings. Somebody said or done something that rubbed you the wrong way. And you know what? Sometimes that person is, comes around to the idea and they apologize to you. Angela was sharing with me this afternoon or uh, maybe it was last night about a roommate in college who just really had her spirit the sideways, sideways toward Angela, not because Angela had done anything, uh, just circumstances that were going on in her life and was rude toward her and, and just unpleasant toward her. And the Lord was working on this young lady's heart and she came to Angela at the end of the semester and said, listen, I've not treated did you right? I am wrong. Now, what did that girl do? She showed humility. It takes a lot of humility to own up that you've done wrong. And you know what Angela did? She showed grace. She forgave. You know, that's what it takes for the air to be cleared. That's what it takes to be in one accord. The offending party must show humility 
the offended party must show grace. If someone brings an offense that you've handed out to your attention, you know what our natural instinct is to do? Defend ourselves. Oh, that's not what I meant by it. Well, that, 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 you're taking it the wrong way. That's, that, you're, you're just wrong in your assessment of this. You know, it's a good day in your maturity in the Lord when you quit caring, caring about how you're perceived and instead you start to care about that person's offended over something they perceived I've done and my job is not to defend myself. My job is to understand and reconcile. That's a great day. That's a great day. Because what ends up happening is you learn to show up to the table with humility or grace depending on what you need. Why don't we have the church? It would be great if everyone here would walk by those two principles. You know what a humble person doesn't do? They don't gossip or backbite or tailbear. They don't do that. If you're humble and someone's done you wrong, you get on your knees and you pray for that person. You know what a gracious person doesn't do? They don't hold a grudge. You know what grace is? Grace is unmerited or unearned favor. You don't forgive someone because they deserve it. You forgive someone because it's the right thing to do. You show grace. A purposeful assembly. A persevering assembly. Letter C, notice, a prayerful assembly. A prayerful assembly. Look at verse 14 with me again. These all continued with one accord. Let's read the next four words together. Ready? In prayer and supplication. In prayer and supplication. Now notice here, notice the depth, the depth of their prayers. It says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. It says there, they prayed and supplicated. Praying is a generic term that means to raise up a petition to God. Supplication is the art of going to God on behalf of someone else. They didn't just pray generically, they interceded profoundly. Let me say that again. They didn't just pray generically, they interceded profoundly. They got down on their knees and they prayed until they got hold of heaven. They prayed and they prayed uh, with with uh, with fervor. They prayed with energy. They prayed like it mattered. I made the point in my life group this morning as we were talking about Peter, how that depending on the way someone approaches you depends on how serious you respond. If someone approaches you casually and says, hey, when you have time and you get around to it, could you fill in the blank? You're going to have a casual response. Oh, yeah, okay. Someone comes to you and says, hey, if you're not too busy, could you help me? You look and you go, well, I am kind of busy, so no, I don't know that I can help you this time. If someone comes to you with great urgency and is written all over their face as though this is an emergency and I need you right now, and they get down on their knees and they, uh, they, they, they really, really plead with you to be there, boy, your response is going to be in manner, in like manner to their fervent, urgent asking. And I feel like many times as Christians we go to God and we don't pray fervently. Lord, I, I pray you'd help me with this, and Lord, you'd help me with that. How about we fervently get hold of heaven the way Hannah got hold of God when her womb was barren? How about we pray like David prayed when his baby was on um, was facing death? How about we pray the way Esther did right before she went in to see uh, the king and 
and, and, and asked God to help her. How about we pray uh, like the young woman did who had the unjust judge. You remember the story, the unjust judge, and she goes in and she says, boy, I, I sure uh, need you to uh, avenge me of the wrongdoing. And through her, the depth of her prayer, the Lord came through. Notice not only the depth of their prayers in Acts one fourteen. notice the duration of their prayers, the duration of their prayers. Now, some simple math gives us the length of time these disciples stayed together, stayed gathered in that upper room. The Feast of Pentecost takes place 50 days after Passover. Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after Passover. That means the first church service there in the upper room lasted for 10 whole days. And you thought our services were long. Ten whole days they were up there. These early believers, they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. What were they praying for? I believe they were praying for the earnest of the Spirit. What were they praying for? I think they knew they were getting ready to go out and preach the gospel. I'm sure they prayed for the response that they would receive. What were they praying for? They were praying for the needs of one another. What were they praying for, Christian? Reconciliation of those gathered in the room. What were they praying for? They were praying for the nation who had rejected the Messiah to repent and receive Him. Take your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 18. Matthew 18 and verse number 18. Jesus wants His people to come to church and pray. Some years ago, we had a church member who, I'll be very generic here, we had a church member who came and complained that our prayer meeting on Wednesday nights was taking up too much of the service and made the service slow and boring. And, um, you know, I, I, I credit this person for being bold enough to come tell me how they felt. I wonder how many other people have felt that way about a prayer meeting going on at church. You know, we're supposed to gather and pray. It's in the Bible. And, you know, listen, not everything about church has to be jumpy and exciting. And sometimes we gather and we, we show up and we work. And you know what prayer is? It's work. It's important work. Now, before we read Matthew chapter 18, I, I, I want to also just get this in here. Everyone has to start somewhere with their prayer life. And we sing the song occasionally in church, Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer, that calls me from a world of care. And I remember as a young boy, I'd try to pray for an hour, and I'd pray for five minutes and felt like I'd been praying for an eternity. Five minutes seemed like forever. I remember the first time I ever prayed an hour, I was just amazed that that had happened. But please understand, these disciples, and I'm sure they weren't praying the whole time, but they were in a spirit of prayer for ten whole days. Ten whole days. Now, something incredible is going to happen in Acts 2. We'll begin to look at next week. 
But isn't it something that they spent 10 days in prayer before that came about? Look at Matthew 18, verse 18. Jesus says here, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever, or what, rather, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything, that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them." When we pray, we shouldn't pray short-term prayers, but rather long-term prayers. We should pray and pray with, uh, with persistence. Luke chapter 11, if you would turn over to Luke chapter number 11 and verse number 5. Here we find a story about someone who prays with the word importuneness or importunity. They prayed a prayer of importunity or persistence. They would not relent. They would not let go. Look at Luke chapter 11 and verse number 5. The Bible says, And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto thee, Though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity or persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and uh, ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. I love Jesus' illustrations and how he interweaves illustrations into everything he talks about. He says, uh, listen, this guy is laying in bed at midnight. He's got his kids in his bed with him. And his neighbor, who's his buddy, shows up and starts banging on the door at midnight. Boy, I don't want my neighbor knocking on my door at midnight. I don't care how much of a friend he is. Especially to ask me to go to my cupboard and get food out of my cupboard to give to him. Man, if you can wait till morning. Leave me alone. And I can see the man shouting from his bed, Hey, leave me alone. I'm in bed. I have my kids in bed with me. He said, Jesus said, that guy's going to get out of bed and he's going to go to the cupboard and he's going to get the bread and he's going to give it to his buddy, not because he's his friend, but because the guy will not stop knocking until he gets the bread. I remember when we were early uh, newlyweds. This one might get me in trouble, but I'm going to tell it anyway. We were newlyweds and um, at two in the morning, Angela reaches over and she shakes me and wakes me up. And I said, what do you want? She said, I'm craving, I'm craving soup. I said, at 2 in the morning? I said, are you pregnant? And she said, no, not that I know of. I said, you want soup? She said, I have to have it. I said, well, you'll get it in the morning. And I rolled over, and I tried to go back to sleep. And about five minutes later, she shook me again. And she said, you don't understand. I have to have soup. I, I have to. And it wasn't just any soup. You know those cup of noodles? Marucha, I think you call them. That's what she was craving. And so at 2.30 in the morning with a really bad spirit, I got out of bed and I get, got in the car and I drove around the corner to the 24-hour gas station and she came running out the door in her robe and hopped in the passenger seat. She sat in the car while I went in and bought it and I, I, I threw it over at her. I didn't throw it at her, but I tossed it to her and I said, there's your soup. Leave me alone. 
And so she's sitting at the dining room table at 3 o'clock in the morning eating her soup, and I'm asleep. You know what? That importunity matters. And Christian, I may not like the importunity, I may not like the persistence, but God loves it when we pray, and we pray with duration. Not only a deep prayer, but a prayer of duration. We see that the first first church service was a persevering assembly, a purposeful assembly, a prayerful assembly. Notice letter D. It was a precious assembly. A precious assembly. Look down at verse number 13 with me. The Bible says, And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room. Look who was in attendance, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotus and Judas the brother of James. There's 11 names there and there's one glaring name missing. We'll talk about the other Judas here in just a moment. Look at 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, Look here, the number of names together were about 120. Each of these believers had greatly valued the Lord Jesus Christ. Who we know is there? Well, the 11 apostles were there. Mary and Jesus' three brothers were there. Who were his brothers? Well, there was Cephas, and there was James, and there was Jude. And so his three brothers and Mary were there. That gets us to... 15. Later in the chapter, we see that Joseph Barsabas, or uh, surnamed Justice, Justice was there, and Matthias was there. So of the 120 for certain, we know of 17 of them that were there uh, by name. We know 17 of the 120. Who else may have been there? Now, I'll admit up front that this is pure speculation, but you're left to wonder who else would have been Amongst the 120. And the Bible says in verse 14 that women, uh, the women who were important to Jesus were there. Well, who would have that been? I'm sure Mary Magdalene was there. I'm sure uh, Mary of Bethany was there. And if Mary of Bethany was there, probably Martha would have been there. You know, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead just a few days before he was crucified. Uh, Wouldn't you think that probably Lazarus was part of... Of that 120, the Bible doesn't say. We're doing some speculating here. But, boy, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were really close to Jesus. I'm sure they were probably there. What about Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you remember John 3? Marvel not that uh, I say unto thee, ye must be born again. Uh, Maybe Nicodemus was there. How about Joseph of Arimathea, who took the body of Jesus off the cross and wrapped him up and put him in his own grave? Uh, That would have made sense that Joseph would have been there. How about Zacchaeus? Remember Zacchaeus, wee little Zacchaeus? Um, uh, Zacchaeus is proof that Jesus saves short people too, amen? Um, all the short people are really offended by that. you got the Napoleon complex, but Jesus saves short people too. There, Zacchaeus was up in the tree, the tax collector, and uh, the Lord saved him that day. Maybe Zacchaeus was there again. I don't know. I'm speculating here. How about Bartimaeus? You remember blind Bartimaeus? Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped everything he was doing, went over and, and, and took his blindness away. Uh, the group of believers that was gathered there in that room that day, they were a precious bunch. They had all had their lives radically touched by Jesus. Can you all look up here at me for a minute? You know why I believe you're here tonight? Because Jesus has radically touched your life. 
Here we are 2,000 years later, and you're sitting in church on a Sunday evening because Jesus has touched you. Oh, maybe not physically touched you, definitely not physically touched you, but he's touched your life, hasn't he? A precious assembly. Number one, what happened that first church service? We see their assembly. Number two, notice Peter's assessment. Peter's assessment. Look at verse 15. The Bible says, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120. Look at what he said. Men and brethren, the, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas. We'll get into what David spake down in verse 20. But he's going to address the matter first, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For speaking of Judas, he was the guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now, this man, Judas, purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers uh, at Jerusalem in uh, in so much that the field is called in the proper tongue. Act, um, uh, let's see. A seldoma, I practice this, a seldoma, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein and his bishopric, bishopric let another take. All right, so here he's going to address the, the glaring absence in the room and that is Judas. Judas was not there. The Judas that betrayed Jesus was not there. Notice letter A, the title Judas held, the title Judas said, look at verse number 17. The Bible says, For he, Judas, was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. What ministry was that? The ministry of being an apostle. He had obtained part of that ministry. The story of Judas is a sad one for sure. He gave up his title as a church bishop and apostle for what? 30 pieces of of silver, the title Judas held. Let her be noticed the thief Judas was. The thief Judas was. Look at verse number 18. The Bible says, Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. Now I probably spent way too much time studying this out this week uh, because it's more of just a point of curiosity uh, than anything. But what money is being referred to here as the reward of iniquity? We know it wasn't the 30 pieces of silver because he threw that money back at the feet of the priests, remember? So what money did he use to purchase this field? It wasn't the 30 pieces of silver. Turn over to John chapter 12 and verse number 4. John chapter 12 and verse number 4. We learn that Judas was embezzling funds. For the children in the room, embezzling means he was stealing. He was misdirecting into his own pocket that which was not his. Look here, verse 4. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Now, uh, Jesus, uh, through the pen of John, discerns what he actually meant. This, verse 6. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because, look here, he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Now, uh, many theologians believe that Judas had been stealing money out of the bag and had used that money to buy himself a farm where he would kill himself. Now, we're doing a quick sweep across 
the second half of Acts chapter 1. But if you really, really want a good Bible study, dive into the language, the Greek language, of uh, what, what Judas bought. He bought this privately, and the word used for field here is our modern-day word for farm. Judas bought a farm privately on the side, uh, uh, speculatorily, or it, it is believed he did this with money. He was skimming off the top uh, from being the treasurer of the disciples. He was a thief. Let her see, notice, the traitor Judas became. The traitor Judas became. Uh, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter number 26. Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 47. This morning we looked at Judas. We talked about our passions. We showed that Judas' weakness, his downfall, what he was really passionate about was money. And the love of money became his downfall. It became his end. It was the evil that overcame him. Look at verse 47 of Matthew 26. The Bible says, And while he, Jesus, yet spake, Lo, Judas, this is Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, Wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. He betrayed his master for 30 pieces of silver. Now, I don't think Judas knew that they were going to take Jesus and crucify him. I don't think he knew that. But he was so blinded in his love for money that he gave up Jesus for that money. Letter D, notice the termination Judas chose. The termination Judas chose. Boy, the, uh, his demons would plague him and he would realize that he had sold Jesus out and his own conscience would drive him to a place of suicide. Look at verse 18. Now this man, Judas, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 18. And this man, uh, speaking of Judas, purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. Look here. Look how he died. And falling headlong... He burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. I won't commentate. You can picture that on your own. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, inasmuch that the field is called in the proper tongue, uh, Akeldema, um, uh, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Judas went out and hung himself. Somewhere in the process, the rope snapped, and he died a gruesome, gory death. Peter stands up and quotes two verses from the book of Psalms. Peter, what he did is he took half of a verse from Psalm 69 and half of a verse from Psalm 109, and he created his own verse. That's really what he did. Here's what Psalm 69.25 says. It says, Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. So he took that first part, Let their habitation be desolate. And then the other half of the verse he got from Psalm 109, verse 8, Let his days be few, and let another 
take his office. Let another take his office. So let their desolation be ha- uh, desolate and let another take his office. Peter concludes that someone must be assigned to take the place of Judas. Now, interesting enough that tonight we have a business meeting. And in the very, very first church service, you know what they did? They had a business meeting. <laughs> Number three, we see the apostle's appointment. The apostle's appointment. Letter A, notice the requirements charted. We're almost done here. Hang with me. The requirements charted. In order for someone to fill the empty seat that Judas had left behind, the disciples laid out in verses 21 and 22 the requirements. Uh, Look here. Um, They must have walked with Jesus. One requirement is that they were around Jesus regularly. Look at verse 21 of Acts 1. The Bible says, Wherefore of these men, speaking of the other men in the room, which have accompanied with us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us. Now, we know that there was the inner three, the most inner three, Peter, James, and John. And then a step out from that, there were 12 in total, uh, listed here in the passage, along with Judas Iscariot. But beyond that, we know in the book of Luke that Jesus took 70 of them and sent them out two by twos, into the community. And uh, uh, even uh, uh, broader than that, there were more people that followed Jesus about. And so uh, one requirement that was charted out here is that they must have been someone who was regularly around the ministry of Jesus. They walked with Jesus regularly. Another requirement was they must have been a witness of Jesus' ministry. So they must have walked with Jesus and they must have been a witness of of Jesus' ministry. Look down at verse 22. Acts chapter 1 and verse 22. The Bible says, beginning, notice here uh, uh, the, the timeline given, beginning from the baptism of John. If you mark in your Bible, you can underline that. Baptism of John unto, the, unto that same day that he was taken up from us must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So verse, 23, verse 22, rather, we see three events in the life of Christ that were a requirement for someone to be an apostle laid out by the other apostles. Here they are. They had to be present at the baptism of Christ. They had to be a, a present and a witness of the resurrection of Christ. And they needed to be there at the ascension of Christ. So the baptism of Christ the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. Once they had laid down those requirements, only two men in the room were left standing. Joseph Barsavis, surnamed Justice, and Matthias. Now, I have always struggled with this passage. And many, many people who study the Bible also struggle with this passage. There's two thought processes here. And one is that the disciples were out of line and out of place to appoint a twelfth apostle because Paul would become the twelfth apostle. And I would say I probably lean in that direction, but I'm not going to take a hard stand either way. Now, other people go on the uh, thought process of, well, man, they were in one accord and they had been praying all this time, and uh, we don't have a lot of information on a lot of the other disciples either. And so the fact that they landed on Matthias and filled that role and we don't hear of him again it's no big deal and this was an apostle and I have to say I understand both uh, lines of thought I'm not sure which one is correct and I'm not going to give uh, come down on one side or the other but I will just add this to the equation in heaven there are 24 elders 12 from the Old Testament 
and 12 from the New Testament. The Old Testament 12 are the, the, those who represent the 12 tribes of Judah and uh, 12 tribes of Israel. And the, um, uh, the 12 of the New Testament are the 12 apostles. So if Matthias is to be counted among the 12 and Paul is counted among the 12, that gets us to 13. And uh, that's not supposed to be the number. So was Matthias supposed to be? I don't know. But I do know Paul would defend his apostleship up and down throughout uh, the New Testament. Uh, Then why did Peter and the other 11 feel the need to select a replacement? Were they right in doing so? And I'll just come back around and say, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Some of you may have a thought or an opinion. I'd be happy to hear it. After the service, I don't know if they were right in doing it, but I do know this. uh, Peter was very good at uh, opening up his mouth and inserting his foot. And so it very well could have been that he just, you know, saw a need and jumped up to fill it and was a little rash in that. I don't know that, though. Letter B, notice the replacement chosen. The replacement chosen. Look at verse number 23 of Acts chapter 1. The Bible says, And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, uh, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go um, to his own place. And a lot of people look at the end of verse 25 as hard proof evidence that Judas died and went to hell. And I would tend to agree with that, that he might go to his own place, maybe even a special place in hell uh, just for him. Verse 26, And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So the, the method of lot casting, that would be equivalent to drawing straws. You know, you hold straws in your hand that are all the same height, and down below the hand, one is shorter than the other. Are you all familiar with that concept, drawing straws? Um, this would have been the method uh, uh, similar to that. Uh, uh, casting lots would have been similar to our drawing straws. And that was the method they used to, to, to land on Matthias. And you think, well, pastor, that, that, that's odd. Why would they use that? Please understand that there is historical reverent, uh, relevance to casting lots. And Achan was discovered by casting lots. And so there was some Old Testament precedent for the use of casting lots. And so we see the replacement chosen, and it being this man named Matthias. Now, I'll just say here that Matthias must have been a great man. He gave up his life to follow Jesus, even though he wasn't one of the twelve. He was present there at the ascension, and he was there in that very first church service. And I would say that we'll get to heaven and learn a lot more about him. Let's bring the sermon to a close here. What did, we, uh, what did they do in the first church service? Go back to the subpoints below point number one with me, if you would. Look there. We said letter A, a persevering assembly. Are you committed to church all the way to the rapture or your death? I want you to answer that question. What would it take to get you to quit attending church? What would it take? What would it take? A persevering assembly. Do you persevere in your walk with the Lord? 
We looked at letter B, a purposeful assembly. All right, here's the next question. Are you determined to show humility, even if it means confessing faults, your own faults, your own offenses? Are you determined to show grace when others have offended you? Do you show up to church with that purpose? We looked at a prayerful assembly. Do you value the importance of prayer? When was the last time you prayed for an hour? How about 30 minutes? How about 15 minutes? You see, great things are going to happen in chapter 2, but based on the bedrock of prayer and grace and humility. And then we saw a precious assembly. Do you value Do you value the other people in this church? Do you care about their spiritual well-being? Do you cherish the people that share this local church with you? I don't know where the Holy Spirit needs to make a change in your heart and in your life. But I'll just finish with this. White Oak Baptist Church isn't great because Pastor Lejeune has alliterated sermons. White Oak Baptist Church isn't great because we have sharp printed materials. White Oak Baptist Church isn't great because we have a nice property. If White Oak Baptist Church is going to be great... It's because of these things they did here in this first church service. One accord, prayer, continuing, valuing one another. Well, we have to get back to the basics. We have to get back to keeping the main thing the main thing. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, this evening. Lord, we ask tonight that you would show us where we can be more godly, where we can be more sincere, where we can be more in line with what you had in mind when you created the church. Lord, bless us this evening. Help us, Lord, to choose to model the spiritual behavior of this church. Lord, work in the hearts of each person here in in, in your own way. In Jesus' name we pray.